0: This is the One Soldier Podcast, Episode 10, The Rhodesian Bush War. In this episode, I'm joined by Tim Bax. He's the best-selling author of the book Three Sips of Gin and a veteran of Rhodesia's bush war. During our chat today, Tim shares his experience fighting terrorists as a soldier of the famed Rhodesian Light Infantry and the Selu Scouts. On today's podcast, I caught up with Tim from his home in Orlando. Here's our conversation.
1: I understand you've got a bit of snow up there.
0: Oh, man, you know what? I was uh, a couple days ago, I was still shoveling my driveway. So, yeah, I'm actually pretty jealous that you're in Orlando right now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty hot here, Russell. You'd have to be indoors, I promise you.
0: Yeah, well, I'm sure it's it's nothing like like your uh, experience in Rhodesia, though.
1: Well, it's a different kind of heat. It's very humid here. It's very dry in Rhodesia.
0: Yeah, right on. Yeah, so you ready for this? Yep. Awesome. Well, Tim Bax, welcome to the podcast. I am really, really excited to have you on the show today. Um, I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Awesome. So, I've been reading your book, Three Sips of Gin, and I like it. I mean, it's it's really good, man. It's a great book. And it, it's sort of... it's. It resonates with, I think, me and anybody who wants to get that sense of adventure and maybe even like remember what it feels like to sort of strike out on your own for the first time and and challenge yourself and test yourself because that's exactly what you did in this book.
1: Well, you know, unfortunately, Russell, that book, it it was originally published as a a humorous uh, memoir of my life. And uh, the the tragic thing is, as soon as you release a book to a a publisher, former publisher, it um, they can pretty much do with it what they want. And they started marketing it as a um, more of a war book than a humorous um, expose of my life. And and that's where it all started to unravel a little bit. But yeah, what I wanted to do, and it's and it's really hard to write a humorous book when you know when you're dealing with things that um, that happened to your buddies in the army, where they might have been badly wounded or died, and, and you you know you've got to be very careful not to make light of something like that. But I found that anything that happens in your life, as tragic or as bad as it might have been at the time, looking back you can always find a little bit of humor in it and it's one way that 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 people like me you know can just get through what what has happened to them in their past
0: yeah well i think that's a good point and you know when reading your book uh the the humor definitely comes out in in many i mean there's so many examples and events in the book where you you do find the humor and i was actually like laughing at when i was reading this book in some parts like the the time when you your sergeant when you're in the reserves of Canada goes off uh and guess yeah. the last well he's, he's yeah. taking a dump yeah. in the woods and and then you're like the guy asked you what was the last thing you heard and you're like a fart yeah. <laughs> it's just <laughs> no but but yeah like you you do it's it's some pretty heavy stuff and I think yeah that makes a lot of sense if you got to try to find some humor in it and if not I mean you're going to go crazy
1: yeah I initially self-published the book and I I I know that your brother has written the book, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. We we, uh, we co-authored the uh, the book. One soldier.
1: And did you self-publish or did you go to a publisher?
0: No, we we got really lucky. Actually, uh, the story behind that is uh, so we got picked up by Harper Collins um, okay. within like 24 hours, and uh, so we got incredibly lucky. I mean, I was talking to my brother Dylan when he got back from fighting against the Islamic State. You know, as the months went on, he would sort of open up a little bit here and there about, you know, his experience over in Iraq, helping out the Kurds. And then like as the pieces started to fall into place, I got into my mind that like, hey, th- this is like an incredible story that people are going to want to know about. And so I, t- I asked him and I said, do you want to write a book and I'll help you? Uh, because, you know, he he's more of a soldier than he is a writer. So I thought I could help him out with that. And uh, his response to me was like, are you? it's a fucking stupid idea. Like nobody's going to want to read about this. And I, I was like, no man, like, trust me, this, this is a good story. We, we should get it out there. And so we, we wrote up a few sample chapters and then found an agent. And then within like 48 hours, I think we were signed on with Harper Collins.
1: Yeah, it's very good. Now, now, Russell, is he still in the army?
0: He's not. He's uh. so he, he got out, he was in Afghanistan, um, I think in 2013. And then he got out of he got out of the army shortly after that, okay. and so while he was a civilian, he he went over to Iraq to volunteer with the Kurds. Okay. And so no, he's uh, yeah. Right now he's like doing investment banking in Toronto on Bay Street. So oh, okay. Yeah. He pursued like a totally different career after that.
1: Okay. the the one The one thing that that writing that book, Three Sips of Gin, uh, did for me was that it it put my name out there, and it got me involved with the United States and the Canadian, I might add, special operations communities. Uh, They just wanted to touch, reach out to me and find out, you know, whether there might be any lessons learned um, today from what we did in the past. And arising out of that, I I wrote another book, which was a a more serious book, whereas the first book, Three Sips of was was a humorous expose of my life. And I really just wanted to, to show that, that you can always find human, anything that happens to you. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's actually a way of coping with, with, with the after effects of, of, of bad things or, or traumatic things which might have happened. And so then I wrote this book called Who Will Teach the Wisdom? And that's more a, a military book um, which which has done really well, and in it I um, I, I just go into those are the sort of various wars we've fought in the past, and 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 where we just lack wisdom in fighting those wars, and how it's just how tragic it is that we have, you know, as we have progressed with unconventional warfare, we have we have tended to conventionalize unconventional warfare.
0: So so that's fascinating. Uh, so you you basically got headhunted by. Uh, the military community to to sort of expand it, it upon it happened.
1: It happened. It happened in a very slow way. Um, I I'm I'm good friends with a with a um, a doctor in America here who who I, who I actually met in Rhodesia. He's an American doctor. He's a virologist, in fact, and in fact, right now he's on the White House task force on this coronavirus thing. Anyway, he—if um, you cast your mind back, you're a young guy, Russell. You might not remember this, but in in 2002 in the states, there was um, there was a, there, 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 there was a big nonsense about someone posting anthrax through the mail, right, to Washington, yeah. and I think about five people got killed uh, through, with with anthrax, and my my friend Steve got into a lot of. He, he was actually accused by the FBI of being the person of interest in that whole fiasco no way and yeah, yeah and then and then about two or three years later he was vindicated and and you know he let off the hook and, and the FBI had you know make amends in quite a in quite a big way so he and I opened up a jungle training camp in Puerto Rico and so at at so we had already opened up a training came in Puerto Rico. I had written this book, Three Sisters, Jen, and got a little bit of interest on the American Special Operations Committee and, and Canadian um, J, uh, JTF2 right. people. And, um, and so we did a lot of training with the guys in Puerto Rico. Wow. And, and, and what they wanted me to do was was teach them some of the tactics that we had used
0: in Rhodesia to see if any of them could be utilized today. So, so you're working with uh, the special ops forces for, for Canada and America in, in Puerto Rico.
1: Yeah, we had, we had a jungle training camp there, um, uh, basically teaching them jungle jungle tactics, um, and we had a lot of fun down there. Yeah,
0: yeah, I bet. Well, what so what what kind of things can be? What What are some of the lessons that you learned fighting the bush war in Rhodesia that can still be applicable to to fighting terrorists today? Because of course, I'd imagine the environment is a little bit different.
1: Oh, it is completely different. But but there are some lessons. You know, the, the first lesson is that we, we 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 have conventionalized unconventional warfare. You know, we send. Um, when I talk about unconventional warfare, I'm talking about battle space. I'm not talking about a battlefield where you know large brigades, armored brigades, um, you know, bludgeon themselves to death on on a large battlefield. I am talking about, you know, small battle spaces, whether it be in Iraq, Afghanistan, or Africa, or wherever. And, you know, we send in guys to to quell insurgencies there, and they are so unprepared for that in terms of so many things. You know, a soldier is equipped with extraordinary power. I mean, life and death are in his hand, but... um, but his authority is very limited. So, you know, a soldier's authority is vested in the next highest rank above them. Um, a, a, um, a, a formation's authority is vested in the next highest formation, which ultimately is vested in uh, an army headquarters somewhere. And in the democrat, uh, dim, uh, democratic society, ultimate authority is vested in the civilian government. So, so what does that all mean? Uh, it means that, you know, some guy in a government is making decisions to send one poor guy into battle space, and and he is not equipped to do that. You know, you can't send uh, a, a soldier who's maybe trained in Sandhurst or West Point or, or whatever military academy that he might have been trained and send him into um, a, a battle space in Afghanistan and and deal with an insurgent because he's just not prepared for that. And the problem also is the second problem is that you know we we teach soldiers what to think. We don't teach them how to think. Insurgencies are, are 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 moving the whole time. The tactics change every day. They um, and, and so if you're fighting an insurgency, you need to change your tactics every day. And unfortunately, our soldiers can't do that because they're told to go into an area, they're told how to fight, they're told what they can do and what they can't do. And so it's, it's just an unfair battle. So in Rhodesia, you know, there's this old mantra that a snake can disguise itself from many things, but it can't disguise itself from another snake. So you don't send a hyena to find a snake, you send a snake to find a snake. So we started this um, um, And the other trouble with the insurgencies are that the difficulty is finding the insurgents. Right. Once you find them, you can bring your weapons platforms to bear, and you can, you can kill the enemy. Well, but this: finding- this, goes,
0: this goes back to, uh, you know, you, I think you're experiencing the in, the in the Scouts, right, of Rhodesia, because I mean, everything you're talking about now is... Uh when, when you say a, a modern soldier is in some ways ill-equipped, well, like, are you getting at the fact that they, they don't really, they can't really fit into the culture and they don't know like the the society that they're sort of like being inserted into?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we um, there, there are so many aspects to this, Russell. First, first of all, you can't send um, a a Canadian or an American or someone into fight or anywhere else because they're just going to, they're, they're going to annoy the, the population. They are not wanted guests there. They are unwanted guests. So that's the first problem that, that someone has when they, any any soldier goes in when, when they go into a battle space. Um, and so they've got to go in, you know, the best way to fight evil is with evil. And a lot of people don't want to hear that. And especially in, in, in the American special operations community, because they, they're very politically correct, and as I presume they are in Canada as well. Oh, for sure. In, in terms of what you can do and what you can't do, because today you've got reporters embedded with you. Everything you do is going to be reported back, and it makes it very difficult for for young guys to operate. But they've got to operate as the enemy. If if you want to find a snake, you disguise yourself as a snake, and you go and kill that snake. Um,
0: so, yeah, and of course that, uh, that brings up all the... You know, the, the the soldiers today are put under a microscope. Absolutely. Um, I did a uh, we did a podcast with a guy named Captain Robert Semrau, who was a Canadian captain in Afghanistan, and he was, you know, it's it's sort of what you're talking about. He was leading a small team, uh, ostensibly to train the Afghan National Army, and I don't know if you're familiar with his story, but he was he was charged with murder because he uh, apparently killed a wounded Taliban on on the battlefield. And that might be an extreme case, but I mean, there's also the microscope is on like, how do you treat prisoners? Like, are you, uh, you know, are, are the there, there was, I, I know at the time, a lot of uh, political problems because we were handing prisoners over to the Americans in Afghanistan. And I think what you're saying is, if you're going to fight an insurgency, then you better take uh, the gloves off. You've got to take the gloves off, and you've got to
1: be—you've got to give young soldiers who are who, who we send to fight that insurgency the ability to make quick decisions, because the the insurgents are changing their tactics every day. They, if they feel that the um, the government forces uh, are getting the upper hand, they'll change their tactics, and we need to to have the flexibility to change our tactics too. So 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 the the authority. To change that tactic must be vested in, in young non-commissioned officers. Uh, you, you know, we must equip young non-commissioned officers at, at, at the lowest level with the ability to adapt and to change as he sees the battlefield or the battle space changing. And he, he cannot be held um, to, to conventional tactics that were taught to him when he, came over to, when he went over to that battle space initially. He needs to be able to say to himself, I need to adapt because if I don't adapt, I'm going to get blown up by an IED or I'm going to get ambushed or I'm going to do something. So, you know, we, I mean, the soldiers that we field, Canadian, American, British, whatever, are the most intelligent soldiers that have ever been fielded in the history of warfare. They, they are really clever guys. I mean, you speak to the average American special operations guy. He speaks two or three languages fluently. He's a university graduate. And so they're clever. They have the ability to think, but they're not, they're not given the latitude to think. So, so they, sort of, think. they sort of need that autonomy in the field. Yeah, they need more autonomy in the field. They need to be able to make decisions and adapt. When the enemy adapts, they need to be able to adapt. And they don't need to go back to a headquarters to get permission to adapt, and wait for that to happen because they'll get killed in the meantime. There are too many, there are too many graves and too many foreign lands of Canadians and Americans and British who who were too slow to learn, and, and and it's a great pity. So, so that's why I wrote that book, Cool Teach the Wisdom, and you know, you, it's um.
0: Well, it sounds like I, I can't wait to to read it. Like I said, I love three sips of gin, and so. Uh, who will teach the wisdom is going to be on my uh, on my list. You mentioned an interesting thing though about how uh, soldiers in the modern era, when we go into Afghanistan or Iraq or any country, we're not wanted. And I think that's a really interesting point because, uh, well, first of all, I think it's correct, but we don't really realize that. And in fact, you know, if you think back to the Iraq invasion the and afghanistan as well the mantra was that we're bringing freedom to these countries and so of course of course iraqis and afghanistan people are going to want us coming in there because we're bringing freedom but uh that that's not actually the case is it No. Like in, that, in many many cases they our our notion of freedom is completely different and alien to to theirs absolutely
1: and you know cultures are so different you you cannot Russell, you cannot send a scientist or a West Point or whatever trained officer to Afghanistan and to expect him to understand the mindset of some mongrel of terror living in the in the shadows in Afghanistan. Uh, that's like that's like um, saying to an astronaut, you know, if they meet, if they per chance meet um, some alien, they they're not going to know how to to mm-hmm. react. Or, 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 or get on with this alien. So, and so, you know, before you send, and we're unwanted. The people just don't want us. We are an unwanted guest. And, and you know, we were training uh, a special forces group um, a couple of years ago. They, they had to go to Kenya. And there was a warlord in Kenya. And and, and so we were training the small operations group we're going to take... Kenya, at our general camp in Puerto Rico, on, on how we thought they should do this. And, and you know, I, I was struck by how cocksure the uh, the young soldiers were. You know, they said to us, um, you yeah, know, we don't really need your training. We can, you yeah, know, we're pretty self-sufficient. You know, we 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 can back ourselves to go and handle any situation. And I said, um, well, how are you going to find the warlord? And they said, oh, we're pretty, we're pretty covert when we need to do. And I said, you know what? That's your first mistake. If if you go, first of all, if you go to an area and you're looking for guys who who've been living in that area all their lives, and you think that you're going to, as as white people, you're going to walk around that area and not, and they're not going to know you're there, you're you're delusional. It's just it ain't going to happen. So it doesn't matter how well trained you think you are. It just simply isn't going to happen. So so so, uh, and so how and you how would can, you
0: how would you have found that warlord or found that terrorist gang in the jungle of Mozambique or the bush of Rhodesia when you were with the Rhodesian Light Infantry or or the Selous Scouts?
1: Well, well, the Selous Scouts would have found them because we would disguise ourselves as other warlords. So, as, as I say, it takes a snake to find a snake. So, so you know, if we wanted to find a terrorist group in Rhodesia, uh, we would disguise ourselves as a terrorist group, but it's not quite as easy as it sounds, you know, you've got to no. learn, I mean, I mean, the, 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 the selection course and what they call the dark phase, we, have, we, we each have to go through what's called a dark phase, where you actually, it's like your brother, he would have to go through training and he would have to completely forget that he was a Canadian officer, he would he'd have to erase that fact from his mind. And he would have to forget how to salute. He would have to forget all the discipline he'd ever been taught, and he would have to learn how to be uh, a Taliban or whatever group that he was fighting, or a warlord in Kenya. And he would have to learn how they acted. He would have to learn how they speak. He would have to learn everything, and it, it would take him a good six or seven months to do that. And so, and so, it's a complete conversion. For for any regular soldier, even being a special operations guy who wants to go in 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 a pseudo operation and 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 and, and act as an enemy, because then what happens is you are now a warlord, and the other warlords actually come and try and find you, and that's how you find them. But the other problem, Russell, is and you touched on it earlier, is you know the Canadian soldier or the American soldier mustn't be killing people in Afghanistan and, um, and wherever they're operating. Because it's all very well to go and kill a warlord. Canadian, You can send a, a, a Canadian combat team into in Kenya, they'll kill the warlord. That's fine, they've killed the warlord. But everyone's going to be incensed about that. And so in his place, another six warlords will rise out of the ashes because people are incensed that Canadians came and killed Kenyans. So you just cannot have that. You can go and train the Kenyans to do the killing, uh, and and this is this is where we must be very very careful with our current insurgency operations.
0: Well, yeah, and it and it all comes back to politics, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh. yeah. So yeah. is that is that how you would have approached things in in the Rhodesian Bush War, with uh, you know, the, the mindset that like we we can't just we don't need to just kill the the leader, but. We've got to eradicate the uh it's like a, a many-headed hydra sort of
1: well the thing is russell you know i've studied a lot of insurgencies. i've fought in a few myself and i've studied a lot and i've been downright amazed at how how, how um ineffectual they've been um, um and, and the big problem in an insurgency is is as is, is, i say finding the enemy And being unconventional, I'll give you an example. In Kenya, back to Kenya. In Kenya, um, in about 1965, I think, there was a huge uprising. Kenya had a lot of, of, of British people, British farmers there. This is the Mau Mau. This is the Mau Mau. And the British sent battalions and battalions and battalions of people to fight the Mau Mau. And it's like any, like any insurgency war. If you look at any insurgency war, from Malaysia to Vietnam to wherever, who has won that war? Who has been the winner in that war? Is it the side with the best trained soldiers? Is it the side with the best weapons? Is it the side with the best technology? Is it the side with the best logistics? No, it's the side that fights with the greatest wisdom. And this is where we in Western armies are, are full short. We don't fight with a whole lot of wisdom. So in Kenya, the British uh, there was only a handful of Māmā. Mau Mau. There, there could only be about maybe thirty or forty of them at the most. And we and the British sent battalions to try and find these Māmā. Mau Mau. And after months and months of flogging around the uh, jungle, uh, the, the Aberdeens Mountains, they hadn't found one Mau. Mau. And there was one man, there was one Kenyan policeman who had lived in Kenya all his life, a guy called Henderson. And um, I, I'm wrong, they, they did capture one Mao Mao. And Henderson said, give me that Ma ma that you captured, and I will turn this whole war around. And with no help from you guys. So he took this Mao Mao, and how Henderson went back into the Aberdeen Mountains with this Ma Ma, they turned him. And how he then connected with more Ma Ma, more Ma Ma, and then, and then he, he ambushed them and he either killed them or captured them. Eventually, the Ma Ma were, were so petrified. It's called terrorizing the terrorists. They didn't know who was a real Ma Ma group and who wasn't a real Ma Ma group. They were too afraid to link up with anyone. So they linked up with no one. And so the whole fabric of the Ma Ma insurgency fell apart because they were being terrorized. They, the terrorists were being terrorized and they didn't know who were real. And that was the same in Rhodesia. Our, the Rhodesian terrorists insurgents didn't know who were real insurgents and who were, who were the Sulu scouts. And they were petrified
0: of us. Yeah, so, and, you, so you, you were able to infiltrate their organization and just like sow the doubt and, uh, you know, the,
1: and make a, their, was, like a
0: lack of trust within their own organization. That's what you must do. And Colonel Reed Daly, who
1: was the uh, commanding officer of the Slew Scouts, he, he was a, a great, great guy, very innovative officer. He, he said to me uh, one day, he said, the enemy must never know in what guise we're going to arrive to attack him next. We must be, com- to be unpredictable is not enough. We must be completely different in everything we must do. We, um, and they must never know whether we're going to come as... Um, Soldiers or pseudo-gangs or civilians. They must never know how we're going to attack them. We must always be doing something different. And this is where I go back to giving soldiers on the ground the autonomy to change their tactics. The thing is, but they're not given that autonomy.
0: And yeah. the students are. So it's a, it's a one-sided battle, and that's the problem. One thing I was wondering but while reading the book is, uh, well, first of all, when you talk about disguising yourself as a terrorist gang, I mean, that, that to me was fascinating because, you know, let's be honest, you're, you're white guys. uh, Not, not an easy thing to pull off that disguise. Um, But then also you've got people working with you who were terrorists a few months, years before, how could you be certain that you had turned them? Like, were were you worried that they were going to sort of stab you in the back?
1: Uh, Well, Sure. There the, are the ways and means of avoiding that. You know, if, um, if, if for instance, if you caught uh, a, a new, uh, if an insurgent was recently caught and captured, uh, we would want to turn him straight away because we would want to put him right back into that battle space because he would, that, that insurgent was known by the locals as being an insurgent. So he, he was known, recognized as being a real insurgent. So if we captured him, we wanted to put him right back in the field that same day with one of our pseudo groups. Um, and so to answer your question, how do you, how do you ensure that he's not going to retaliate and shoot us? There's all kinds of ways of handling that. We, you know, we, we would take the firing pin out of his AK. We'd give him an AK. We'd say, hey, we trust you. Here's an AK. Uh, you're one of us now. And, but, we, but we would have taken the firing pin out or, or right. make it so the firing pin could work or something like that. So, you know, you've got to protect yourself. Um, but we had very few of those situations where they turned because because they knew that if they returned back to their gang, if we had captured somebody and 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 we were using them in a pseudo group, and they 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 abandoned our pseudo group, went back to their gang. Their gang would wouldn't accept them; they would kill them. Yeah, because think that they they were they were a double agent or something. So. That was another reason why they, there were all kinds of reasons to, of, of ensuring that they would stay loyal to you. It, it's it's not
0: an easy thing to do. That's yeah, not, well, and no guarantees either. So it's, yeah. I think, yeah, like I would imagine that, uh, you know, you can sort of double cross once, but you you can't do it twice. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. But but yeah, I would imagine that the uh, that just being deep in the in the jungle or, or the bush with a small group of guys would be in some ways just terrifying. Uh, more so than if you're you know fighting alongside like a company of men or or a larger force because you're so exposed out there and you're in hostile territory where I would assume a lot of the the villages and the people there were probably sympathetic to Zanla and Frulemo.
1: They are, they, of course, and that's the other problem. There are so many issues, Russell, fighting an insurgency. I mean, they just, we're at such a disadvantage as an as, as external force going into a country like Afghanistan because, first of all, got the local population knows that we're not going to be there forever. The insurgents are going to be there forever. So where do you think their support's going to be? Right. Um, they, they, you know, we think that we can... Um, um, subdue them with our massive weapons, platforms, and firepower? We can't. Uh, any, any village anywhere, any villager anywhere, whether he's in Afghanistan or Iraq or Rhodesia or wherever, is more afraid of being having his, slope, his throat slit by a machete than he is of a bomb dropping from the air because he doesn't understand what a bomb is. He doesn't understand right. missiles. He doesn't understand anything. But he understands a cold piece of steel at his throat. So he's more, he's more terrified of a machete than of our multi-million dollar weapons platforms we used to try and subdue, subdue him. So there's all kinds of issues that, 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 that are play okay there.
0: So, so I wonder though, if, uh, you know, I wonder like how much of this, when you look back on, on your experience in Rhodesia, like how much of the outcome was inevitable like, I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, was the tide of history just going in one direction and the fall of Rhodesia was inevitable? Or if the scouts had been able to uh, prosecute the war in the way that that uh, that someone like Reid wanted, could the outcome have been different? Like, if some things had changed, like, a little bit different, uh, could, could the outcome have changed as well?
1: I don't think the outcome could have changed, really. I mean, we, you know... The argument is that we we were defeated not on the battlefield but politically. We just didn't have we didn't we, we ran out of weapons, we ran out of bullets, we ran out of um, uh, gasoline, we ran out of everything because of sanctions. So
0: we were being forced to to negotiate. Because um, there's a point in the book where uh, where your commander he wants to I think he wants to blow up a bridge in Mozambique or or send in uh, some some fighter aircraft to to get the job done. And then there's a a discussion on the cabinet table and all these like political considerations come into play.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, It's, you can't find a war without, you can't find a fight a war in isolation. There's always going to be a political aspect to it. And if you think that you can fight a war in isolation, you're doomed right from the very beginning. It's going to be a dual approach, a political approach and a, a military approach and you can't do the one without the other and that's I think where where we made our big mistake um and 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 the mistakes have been made all over, all over the world we it's
0: yeah. yeah it sort of seemed like there was like the the dominoes started falling when uh when the portuguese at least from from reading the book it seemed that when the portuguese got out of mozambique then that's when things really started to to sort of Go yeah. sideways, I guess you could say.
1: Yeah, I'm amazed at your at, your, at your grasp of that of that history. Yeah. We you know whilst the Mozambique, whilst the Portuguese were still in Mozambique, the Portuguese army, although they weren't very effective, they were a presence on the ground. And um, so so when they left, uh, it 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 um, expanded our hostile border by about you know, seventy percent. We just didn't have the manpower to to to, to do it. and So we had to be completely innovative all the time and that's why we were so successful as Rhodesian soldiers fighting the insurgents. Although we lost the war, yes we did, but we we never lost the battle and um, and, um, it's because we kept adapting and changing.
0: Yeah, it's almost like, uh, well I mean you hear that phrase so often, right? Like we the, the army that wins all the battles and then still loses the war. I mean, yeah. Rhodesia is a perfect case of, of that. Is, well. But like, and I, I think of, uh, you know, in North America, I think a lot of us are, are way more familiar with the Vietnam war, which mm-hmm. was fought at the same time period. And, and once again, it's the same thing where the Americans could be relied upon to win all the battles and all the firefights. Uh, but they still lost the war there's, there's a lot of similarities there. I was kind of wondering also, like in the book, you, you refer to the, the terrorists as, uh, as gooks. And Uh, of course anyone who's watched a a Vietnam film, like knows that term. So like was actually, this is a question for my brother. He, he was wondering if that term was because of all the Vietnam vets who, who came to Rhodesia to help out. You you tell your brother that I was in Fort Bragg about two years ago and
1: we were doing a, a presentation to the, um, Green Berets, it was a four-day presentation and, um, you know, the, the whole, the, 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 the reason for the presentation is that we were explaining to them how we would have done, they were going on a mission and we were telling them how we would have done the mission and I said to the guys, the, the American Special Operations guys, you know, you just sit back and relax and, and I'm going to take you on a tour of what, what we would have done. Because if you scratch around all graveyards long enough, you're going to find something that might just benefit you. And I use the terminology gooks quite a lot. And halfway through my presentation, I was stopped and I was actually chastised by, by one of the Americans. They said, that you're not allowed to use that expression anymore. That That is infradict. You, you must stop using that expression. I said, why? I, that's what we called them. Because you guys call them that, so to answer your question, Russell, we we call them groups arriving out of the American war, where they call them groups. Uh, but uh, um, you know, because there because there were some Oriental people in our
0: audience, and yeah. it was, it was it deemed uh, to be demeaning. So back to the uh, the political correctness, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and and sort of on that note. Uh, the, the headlines in Canada this week were that uh, the Canadian army has to get rid of all their gender. Uh, it, all, all terms have to be now gender neutral. Yes. Uh, so, so who knows, who knows where that's leading, but, uh, but yeah, also, I'll,
1: tell, I'll tell you what you can do. If you, if you, um, if you email me your address when we finish here, I'll send
0: you a book. Yeah. Okay. You About and, that. You and, and you I know what? You I'll, uh, I'll send you one of our books too. Yeah, let's, let's just swap. Yeah. I will exchange
1: addresses and um, and because you can't get that book anywhere. I I'm nearly gonna start those books.
0: Okay, well hey, I look i will look forward to, to receiving that. Do, do you have a few more minutes or uh, yeah now I've got a couple more minutes, yeah. Okay. So uh, one thing I another thing I was hoping to get into was the the difference between uh, Zanla Xanla and for limo like the so these were two terrorist groups that you guys were fighting uh were they allied together or in coordinating or was one of them like funded by the chinese and the other the soviets How, how did that work
1: okay so so rhodesia is pretty much split down the middle with two tribes you have the tribe in the northern part of rhodesia called the shona tribe and you have a tribe in the southern part of rhodesia called the Matabili. and the Matabili tribe and and Pretty much, you could say the border was right through the middle. And the Matabili tribe who lived in the south of Rhodesia were an offshoot of the Zulu tribe who lived in South Africa. Very warlike tribe. Um, you know, they were not, they, they didn't sit around and cultivate the land and raise cattle. They, they were just warlike. They would they would raid other tribes. So you had the Matabili in the south and you had the Shona in the, um, in the north. And the whole insurgency in Rhodesia started off, funny enough, with the Shona because they're they're actually traditionally a peace coming, uh, a peace loving uh, a tribe. They just raise their cattle and grow their corn, and yeah, you know, that's it. But they started the insurgency, and they were backed um, by China. They were armed, and 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 they were recruited, and on you know, and on supported by China. Then the matabili they they joined the insurgency but 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 not amalgamating with the Shana so you had two specific groups, and the matabili were supported by the Russians so and they they hated each other and they would clash I mean the, you know you would you, we would come across horrific battle scenes where the matabili had been fighting the Shana and the place was strewn with dead people. They hated each other. Yeah, really. That was something that we could play on. We we, well, played, I bet. we played on that. The Frelimo that you mentioned earlier were the Mozambique resistance people they were they were, were on the Mozambique side. Right. So, you know, and, and, and do you know what the other big thing, Russell, about the difference between Rhodesian soldiers and say Canadian soldier and American soldier, British soldier, is we we were fighting to save our country. We, we were fighting in our country to save our country. Uh, and that's completely different to a Canadian soldier going over to Afghanistan. He, you know, the, the, the whole dynamic's are different. He's there doing something for someone else, and, and he's seldom appreciated for doing that by the people that he's going yeah. to defend.
0: Yeah, well, and that's I was thinking about that too when reading the book, is that the, the Rhodesian soldier was, uh, th- this was like an existential battle because if you lose, then you... You 're going to lose your country and and what does that mean? Well, I assume it means you're going to lose your home and you possibly everything. like uh, your family members like. Th- this is like a, uh, a war where the stakes are just incredibly high and yes. yeah. th- that, that must have been the reason why Rhodesia was able to fight for for what was it like 10, 12, fifteen years Well, that yes, it was
1: and, and, and you know when you, when you're fighting to save yourself and your country and your family and your home and everything. Uh, defeat is not an option. You don't, you're not worried about the politics of what you do. You're not worried about um, fighting evil with evil and and, and dressing up as a devil to fight the devil. Right. Uh, um, and, and we didn't care what we did. We, we just had one thought in mind, that's what we had to win the war. And we had very few friends, but, uh, you know, we did what we had to do, and we weren't we weren't um, we weren't hindered by uh, an unfriendly press or, or or by public opinion or anything like that because the public opinion was against us anyway. There's nothing yeah. we could have done that could have could changed that. So we just we just really did what we had to do, and and some of the things that we had to do couldn't be done today. But but if if Canada was invaded. That would be a whole different story. Yeah. That would be a whole different story where, you know, the Geneva Convention, they can go out the window,
0: we 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 need to save our country, yeah. Well that's that's fascinating. Are you able to give an example of, of what you mean by that when there's just something that would not be able to be done well, today? Just the whole slew scout thing
1: was 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 very, very difficult. Uh, no, you know, I mean, there's some things that we just don't want to go back on, but but we 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 were not held back in any way. We would we had to do something, we could do it.
0: Yeah, there there's uh, I, I don't want to keep you for too much longer, but um, the the mission, I, I guess, at the at some point, you guys must have realized that the war was not going to end in a favorable outcome for you guys and. And near the end, there's a, a mission where you and I think it's, uh, I forget who's involved in it, but it's you and I think a former terrorist who you turned and you're actually got a mission to kill Mugabe, who of course is the tyrant who took over that country. If, if you would have been able to pull that off, like would, would Rhodesia or Zimbabwe would have, have gone down like a different path if, without Mugabe or would somebody of his ilk taken over from him?
1: Yeah, somebody It it would have changed. It would have changed the trajectory of history a little bit, but it wouldn't have altered the ultimate result. Because you know, you take Mugabe out of the equation. It's like it's just like today in Zimbabwe. You took Mugabe was taken out of the equation. Everyone thought that when he was taken out of the equation, Zimbabwe would get out of the doldrums and recover economically, and 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 and, um, and sort of shake off the, the dust of the past, didn't. It's, just, it's as bad as it ever was, because whoever took over from Mugabe, the guy and Manandagwa, he uh, he was as bad as Mugabe. So it wouldn't have changed. Um, it wouldn't have changed the mindset at all. No.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, sort of goes back to that like inevitable outcome. Anyway, Russell, look,
1: you send me your your brother's book. I'd really like to read it, and I will send you a copy of Fulties to
0: Wisdom. I I can't wait to read it, Tim. Hey, thanks a lot for spending some time with me today, and uh, yeah, I I can't wait to read uh, the next book.
1: Okay, we'll stay in touch, and I appreciate the uh, the opportunity. Okay, thanks, Tim. Bye now. Bye-bye.
0: And that concludes my interview with Tim Bax. If you want to learn more about the Rhodesian Bush War, then I highly recommend you get a copy of his book, Three Sips of Gin. It's truly a fantastic read. And if you like this episode, then please take a minute to like and share on your social media, or better yet, you can go old school and tell a friend directly about it. Hey, you can also help me out by leaving a review on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also check out more about my interview with Tim Bax by going to my website, www.onesoldierpodcast.com That's it for today, out.